we take a look at uh, the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to be in chapter 25 and 26. We're going to finish up this particular sermon of Moses, which began in chapter 4. So if anybody's thinking Jackie talks too long and his sermons are too long, I have yet to do a 22-chapter sermon. That doesn't mean I won't at some point. But uh, Moses is finishing up his. And again, you've got to have the picture in your mind when you look at the book of Deuteronomy. Moses, the old man, telling the young kids, the young people, those who are getting ready to enter into the promised land, all his little tidbits of wisdom. Hey, guys, here's where we failed. Here's what you need to remember if you want to succeed. Here's what you need to, to make a, a promise to be dedicated to and to focus on. And when we study Deuteronomy, I know it's, it's, it's always a challenge when we go through the Old Testament because it's, it, it sometimes reads like you're reading a history book as you're going through some of the things that occurred. But keep in mind, when we look at the book of Deuteronomy, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting... The devil came to him. You know what? from which book he quoted? Deuteronomy. He laid that out for him. He laid out for him. Hey, guys, listen. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Holding on to the truth that God's word, guys, is good. And even the things we look at today, we're going we're gonna to look at some things. We're going to think, now, why in the world is that in the scripture? What's the purpose behind that? Here's what you need to understand. God cares about every aspect of your life. And we got to understand that. Sometimes we, we make this, this, this uh, delineation between sacred and secular. That like these things are sacred, but these things, you know, God doesn't really care about that. That's just, you know, that's my nine to five life, Monday through Friday or whatever. But God cares about my my time on Sunday or my time here or my time in worship or my time in prayer or my time in study. Listen, there's no delineation according to God between sacred and secular. Every aspect of your life, every single aspect he cares about. It matters to him. When we look at this, we see, hopefully we see the, the words of a God who, who cares, who sees the needs of his people and wants them to understand his character, God's character, we understand as we look through the Old Testament, particularly through the Pentateuch. As we look at the Pentateuch, the law, God is saying, you want to know what I like? You want to know what matters to me? You want to know what, what it is that I require, what I want? Here it is. Here it is. And he has something for every part of our life. As he begins his conclusion, we start at chapter 25, verse 1. He says, now listen, if there is a dispute between men and they come to court, that the judge, or that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in the presence, in his presence, according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. Forty blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. You see, this is where the idea of 39 lashes came from. God said, if you go to judgment and the judge finds against the wicked man for whatever he did, and the judgment is a beating, you're to receive so many lashes. God says then that those lashes will be applied before the judge so that the judge can see that they are applied and how they are being applied and they shall never be more than 40. Whose rule is this? It's God's rule. This is God's rule. When Jesus was beaten, whose rule were they following? Oftentimes I'll hear people when they talk about the lashing of Jesus Christ and they'll say he received 39 lashes. What's that based on? 39 lashes, guys, was a, a Jewish law. When's the last time Rome followed Jewish law? Rome didn't. Why? Because God wants his people, even in their administration of judgment, to understand that God has no glory in the destruction of the wicked. But that the wicked would turn and live. 
So even in the bringing of judgment, there was to be mercy. Tempered with mercy. The concept, don't humiliate your brother. Even though that guy wronged you, even though he was found guilty, even though the judge brought down the judgment that he would receive however many lashes, it could be 10, it could be 39, it could never be more than 40. And the idea is that you wouldn't humiliate your brother in the administration of judgment. It mattered to God. It mattered to God even how the condemned was treated. Throughout the law, we're going to read several places where God says, and if such and such happens, then, then they're to be stoned. They're to die. And we look at that as though that's the ultimate. We look at that as though, oh my gosh, I mean, they, they lost their life for that? What's God's primary concern with his children? That all his children arrive home safe. What's your primary concern for your children? Especially when they reach the age where they can start going out and doing whatever things they're going to do. Is that my children come home at night when they're done doing all those things. I'd like to go make all their choices for them. I don't get to do that. But I want to see them arrive home safe. That's God's same desire. And if by bringing that judgment that takes a person's life is what is required to bring that brother or sister home then God's going to do it because the most important thing to him is that they have eternity with with the Lord that's the most important thing or by removing that that thing that sin that issue from the camp that less people get infected and more people are able to make it home as a result that's God's primary concern we have to understand that But even in the administration of justice, even in the administration of judgment, what is God's heart? Read the book of Revelation. What does God want to hear from the people? Repentance. What do we read at least three times in the book of Revelation? A man would not repent of his evil deeds. And when man cried out, who did he cry out to in the book of Revelation? He cries out to the rocks, fall on me and hide me from from the wrath of the Lamb. Fall on me and hide me from the judgment of God. Not a cry out to God, Lord, forgive me. That's God's heart. I do not glory in the destruction of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn and live. So when we look at that, understand that temperance of judgment Even in this case, God tempers the judgment that he has with mercy. Forty lashes was the most that could be received. More often than not, they would receive 39. Now, look at as we continue on. Verse 4, you will not muzzle an ox while it treads a grain. Now, in the New Testament, this is used as justification for paying wages that are due. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and other places, the Lord lays out, hey... Pay what's owed. Pay what's due. Give payment for the the things that you say you're going to give payment to. Don't muzzle the ox while he treads the grain. If someone's working, doing work, it's it's been appropriated to pastors, been appropriated to elders, it's been appropriated to those who work for you. Don't tread or don't muzzle the ox while he treads the grain. Give him his opportunity to, to, to provide, to make a living based on uh, what he's done for you. Now, in verse 5, we have the law of the Leverite marriage. The law of the Leverite marriage. Let's take a look. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside of the family. Her husband's brother will go into her and take her as his wife. And perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. It shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. This is God's concept. This is God's direction for what's called the Leverite marriage. That a man's name would never cease from being a part of the nation of Israel. 
The, the concept behind that is it would be possible for Israel to shrink. The land was owned based on the allotment that God gave by tribe, right? And if a tribe completely died out, what happened to that land? So God says, I don't want the tribes to cease. I don't want people to die out. So if a, 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 a man dies and he has no heir. Now, here in your Bibles it says, son, maybe some of your Bibles says child. Child is probably a better translation. Uh, didn't matter if it was a boy or a girl. The inheritance could be passed. We've already seen that as we've gone through the law. So, but as we take a look at it, there's no child. Then she was to be picked up or or wed, married by the brother, and he would provide for her a a child to carry on his brother's name so that his brother would not cease from existence. We see this occur in a very important story in the Bible, don't we? In the book of Ruth, right? In the book of Ruth, we see the law of the Leverite marriage take place when Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, marries Ruth. He becomes near of kin to her and he fulfills the the obligation as nearest of kin. Uh, We'll see in the book of Ruth, the nearest of kin actually refuses. He wants the land, but he doesn't want the people. But uh, here, Boaz, who's a picture of Christ, he wants the bride. He cares more about the person. And he'll take with that all responsibility for her. There are four things that would have to occur in order for for the Leverite vow to be fulfilled. Of those, it would be the man would have to be willing. He would have to be able to, to pay the debt or to fulfill the role. Not only did he have to be willing and he had to be able, but then he also had to be willing to assume all obligation. All obligation. Whatever there was against her, he would take it all. He would take all of that upon himself to to meet that need so that his brother, his name would continue on. His brother's name would go forward. As we take a look at this, he's going to also lay out for us what would occur if they wouldn't accomplish it. Now think about this. This uh, This would make your brother getting married a little more interesting, wouldn't it? You bring your special girlfriend home to introduce her to the family and your brothers are all looking at her like, this could end up being my wife one day. <clears throat> uh, maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, I don't know. But as they look at her, why does the Lord lay this in here for us? Because he wants us to understand the links that he, God Almighty, is willing to go to meet our need, to pay our debt, to redeem us. That he who is not God, being very God, would become man so that he would be of near kin to us. We who are without child, we who are without hope. A child spoke of hope. Without children, you had no hope for the future. We who are without hope see God Almighty become flesh so that he can put his hand in the hand of man and another in the hand of God bridge the gap between them. He becomes our Goel, kinsman, redeemer. He becomes our Boaz. When Ruth and Boaz get together, Boaz takes Ruth. Do you guys know what the product is? Ultimately, Christ passes through the the lineage. Ruth, I don't remember if Ruth begets Obed or Jesse, but it doesn't make any difference. Both of them go to David, and David goes to the Christ, son of David. Passes through this. So the Lord lays out this law. We look at it and we go, wow, this is kind of a weird thing. But we see God utilizing it himself to bring to you and I the Messiah. As we go on, well, what happens if a man doesn't want to do it? What happens if a man's not able to do it? Verse 7, but if a man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. And the elders of the city will call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife will come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up 
his brother's house. And his name will be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. This is about the place where John Corson says something like, because he's a heel or something. But as we take a look at, at what the scripture lays out for us here, the point is, it wasn't a commandment. A, a brother never had to do this for his brother. He never had to. But if he didn't do it, it was a sign that he didn't love his brother. He didn't love his nation. He wasn't willing to fulfill what, what God lays out for him to do. So in the story of Ruth, we see this occur. There's a nearer kinsman than Boaz. And they go to him and they say, will you fulfill the right? And he says, yeah, I mean, I can have all her land. Sure, sounds great. Yeah, but you have her too and you have to raise up for her a son. And he says, that's going to mess up my inheritance. Forgive it. Forget it. I don't want to do it. Now, by the time it got to that point, the, the order had changed. See, she was supposed to take off his sandal and spit in his face. By this time, they just take off his sandal and he gives it to her. But there was no spitting in the face going on when we get to the book of Ruth. You know, why? I don't know. Guys probably didn't like the idea of being spit on. But he still became him as, who was known as the one who lost his sandal, wasn't willing to fulfill the role of his brother. But Boaz was willing. All of that takes place here in Deuteronomy as he lays out for them how to keep the name of Israel moving forward. And make sure that each family is able to continue and remain. <clears throat> then in verse 11 it says, and this, here's something you probably thought you never were going to read in church. If two men fight together, and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the other one attacking him, and she puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals, then you will cut off her hand, your eye will not pity her. You thought... Well, there are some things I just didn't think we'd ever talk about. <clears throat> what we want to understand when we look at this is it's a little more than how we read it. What basically is occurring is a man's wife who is fighting with another man. His wife is making a eunuch out of the guy he's fighting against. Right after God said the importance of the nation of Israel raising up for themselves children... God says, I want you to understand, if, if two men are fighting and his wife comes in and rips off his genitals so that he's not able to procreate, can't have any children. I want you guys to understand, God says in the book of Malachi, why does he care about this? Because I desire, God says, godly offspring. I want children. I want you to raise up children. So God says, think about what you're doing. Think about what you're doing. Understand that that was God's desire. That was God's design. So here, he says, if she does it, cut off her hand. Cut off her hand. Don't pity her. She has ruined or prevented him from having children. So that, in the original language, that's what we're looking at. The fact that she is making him a eunuch. <clears throat> she, she's getting a little carried away, I think. So... But the Lord, again, saying, listen, listen, I care about having kids. And I want the nation of Israel, which is how many tribes? Does that seem like a lot to you? And I want these 12 tribes to remain. And that they would grow and that they would have children. So he says, I want you to understand the importance that he places upon that. Now in verse 13, he says, I want just weights and measures. God doesn't want us ripping each other off. Verse 13, you will not have in your bag different weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house, you shall not have in your house different measures, a large and a small. You shall have perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God has given you. He says, don't rip each other off. You, you will have just measures. So when you were measuring on the scale, you would have one that was true and one that was a little light. And so if you wanted to take advantage of somebody, you'd use that one that's a, a little heavier, or a little lighter, depending on which way you were trading, so that you would get a better deal. God says, don't do that. I don't want you to even have them. I want you to be just, honest in the dealings that you have with people. 
I want you to be honest in, in the things you sell. I want you to be honest in the things you buy. I'm not asking you to be, to be overly uh, uh, giving or gracious on one hand or the other. I just want you to be fair. If you're measuring uh, by the measure of your grain and you have one scoop, but you have another scoop that's a little bit smaller, just enough that you're, you're able to rip somebody off on what you're selling them, how, how much of an omer of grain you're giving. God says, don't even have two scoops. Have one. Be perfect and just that your days will be full in the land. If God cared about them being perfect and just to one another, does he care about us being perfect and just to one another today? He doesn't want us ripping each other off. He doesn't want us ripping off people that aren't even in the faith or that aren't a part of the faith. He wants us to be faithful And he wants us to be just in the judgments that we bring. He wants us to do that and understand that so that we'll remain in the land. Now, what are we talking about for us? When he talks about remaining in the land, guys, he's talking about us experiencing the abundant life, the victorious life with Christ. And if we're going to experience that victorious life, we've got to be honest. We need to understand. And last week we talked about, God, does God want the, a tithe off of your stolen merchandise? Does he want the, your illegal gotten money? No, he don't want that stuff. He wants us to be honest, forthright, forthcoming with one another. In verse 16 he says, for all who do such things, listen, I want you guys to understand this. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously are what? An abomination to the Lord your God. Everybody hear that? All who do such things or who behave unrighteously. How many of us behave unrighteously? I don't know about you. My hand goes up. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. What did he call us? An abomination. Do we have to be careful? As we study scripture, there's... All kinds of sins that the Bible calls an abomination. We tend to focus on certain ones. As though somehow they're the unpardonable sin and so you are an abomination. So if you ever think that way, just remember the finger you're pointing at someone else. You have three pointing back at you. You're an abomination too. If you behave unrighteously, if you've done unrighteousness, you're an abomination to the Lord. What happens when we come to Jesus Christ? He who became sin for me so that I could become what? The righteousness of God. I come to Jesus Christ by faith. I put my weight into him. I say, Lord, I I am an abomination, but you are just and pure and right. And the Lord says, if you put your trust in me, I'll make you righteous. Did I do it to myself? No. Does that mean I'll never struggle or, or mess up? No, I may, I still sin. But Jesus Christ will wash me white as snow. And though your sins are as scarlet in the book of Isaiah, what happens? They shall be white as snow. Pardon, pure, clean, perfect. Because Jesus bore that sin on the cross. Just that sin or all sin? All sin. For whosoever will call in the name of the Lord, what? Shall be saved. Shall be saved. They call on name. They put their faith and trust in him. What's required in that is me to say, God, I agree with you. I am a sinner. I can't go to God and say, okay, God, I put my faith in you, but I don't agree with any of this stuff. I acknowledge you're right. I'm wrong. Forgive me. Be my savior. And he'll be my savior. He'll fulfill that call, that direction for us. So even as we look, God wants that. He wants us to treat one another justly. He wants us to be honest to one another. Then in verse 17, he turns his attention toward Amalek. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you were coming out of Egypt? How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. 
There's a particular king that was given this responsibility. Anybody remember who he was? King Saul. King Saul, when you finally have rest from your enemies, wipe out the Amalekites. What's the Lord saying to you and I in this? Listen, Amalek becomes a picture of our flesh. And God says, wipe it out. Utterly obliterate your flesh. Don't leave that little corner okay. That little part you say, well, God, I pretty much clean everything else, but I'm going to keep this little closet over here. And in that closet, I'm going to put all these things that every once in a while, I want to open up the closet and play with that stuff. God says, no, utterly obliterate the Amalekites. Utterly obliterate your flesh. Destroy it. Don't leave any around. So what does Saul do? What did Saul do? Did he utterly obliterate the Amalekites? Nope. He kept one, a particular king. You remember what the king's name was? Agag. Agag the king. And who comes and finds Agag still alive with King Saul? Do you remember? Samuel. Samuel comes and he says, didn't God tell you I hear the bleeding of sheep and all this? And, and Saul makes all these excuses. Then what's he do? Samuel grabs a sword and kills Agag. Guess what? Wasn't fast enough. What do you mean? Study your scriptures. Who killed Saul? An Agagite. A child of Agag. A child of Agag? How long did he keep Agag alive? I don't know. But he's going to be killed by a son of the man that he didn't kill when God said, wipe them all out. What happens if we don't destroy the flesh? What's it going to do to us? It's going to destroy us. If we don't take care of it, it will take care of us. So God says, wipe it out. Don't leave any of it around. Don't leave any of it. For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I don't live in the power of the flesh, but in the power of God who gave himself for me. You see, it's the same thing in the spiritual sense to us. Obliterate those things in your life. Deal with those things. Don't play with them. Don't pretend like they're okay because they will cost you. They come and get us. And that's the point that Moses is laying out for Amalek. He says, do not forget him. Chapter 26, and it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and you possess it and dwell in it, that you will take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you bring from your land that the Lord your God has given you, and you put it in a basket, and you go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you will go to the one who is priest in those days and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. So there's going to be a, a sacrifice, an offering of first fruits. This is different than every other offering of first fruits. This is the very first one in the promised land. The very first time you come into the promised land, the very first time you receive the fruit of that land, you're going to take it to the Lord and you're going to give thanks. God brought me into the land like he said he would. He brought me to the promised land. Throughout the scripture, the scripture calls us to remember to give thanks for what God's done. One of the things that always concerns me when, we, when the nation, when the world comes into times like it's in today, is everybody gets focused on what they think they're not going to have anymore. Instead of focusing on what they do have. What do you have? I don't know. Most of us in here are richer than, than nine-tenths of the world we have two cars, most of us. If you have one car and a TV, you're richer than nine-tenths of the world. <clears throat> and we focus rather on what we may be missing, what we may be losing, what we may not have anymore. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't call us to prudence. He does very much call us to be prudent, to see the storm on the horizon and prepare. But... We should never lose sight of the fact that we should be giving thanks what we have right now for what God's given us today, for how God has provided for us, for, for, for all those things that the Lord God does. We should be giving thanks. 
They were to bring these first fruits. They were to bring them to the Lord. And then when they brought them, when they brought them, they're going to celebrate their history. They're going to give a rehearsal of how God has blessed them throughout time. That's important for us to do. A long time ago, somebody told Kathy and I that we needed to write a, what would we, what'd they call it, a God book? Jehovah Jireh. Yahweh Yireh. Jehovah Jireh book, how God provided for your needs. Because you're going to come to a time, as you write in that book, all the blessings, how God's met you, answered prayers, all those things. Write them down. And then when you come to the storm and all of a sudden the grocery store is closed and there's no bread and there's no food and there's no gas and we start to get panicked and afraid, go to your Jehovah Jireh book and read it. Because you're still a child of the king. And he promised, I will meet your needs. And you remember how God met your needs. And you remember him. Does God call us to a spirit of fear? No. He doesn't call us to be afraid. Even when he was laying out the end times, as he was laying out all the things on the horizon for the disciples, did he say, be afraid, be very afraid? No, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Neither let you be afraid. You believe in God? Believe also in me. Right? I go to my father's house. And if I go, I'll prepare a place for you. And I'll come again. Did he say, I'll come again before you get hungry? No. Did he say, I'll come again before things are hard and difficult? No. What did he say? I will come again. And he calls us to look for him. Look for him. Jesus said, when you see these things happening, to do what? Lift up your head. Why? Your redemption draws nigh. Your redemption draws nigh. So we want to have an attitude Not of reckless abandon, of running up our credit cards and saying, you know, God's going to come and I won't have to deal with any of this stuff. (laughs) Man, don't do that. No, that's not the attitude. The attitude is I'm going to live this day as though I'm going to see my Savior today. And that's my focus. That's my focus. It's seeing Him and doing what God's called me to do and being prudent with that which God's given in my responsibility. When the nation of Israel was facing famine and hard times, how many people did God call? One. What was his name? Joseph. And he saved them all, right? By, by God giving to him direction on what to do. And he did it. He, he, he did it. Did he do it just so he could keep his own basement full? He did it so he could feed everybody, right? Everybody. You read the story. How many people came to Egypt? Everyone. There was no food anywhere. Where'd they go? Egypt. Why? Because God had blessed Joseph with a plan. And Joseph provided. And people had what they needed. God raised up a man. Maybe God's raised up that man here. Maybe God's doing a movement here within our body. And, and when he does and as he does, by golly, we'll fulfill it. But I won't have a spirit of fear. I know what God has done for me. I know what he's brought me through. I know what God's capable of. And I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him no matter what. So even as these guys, even as these guys put together this time when they entered into the land and they said, here's an opportunity. We're going to give our offering to the Lord, the first fruits of what God's given us. We're going to offer it to him. And then in that offering, we're going to celebrate all that God's done for us. That's an important thing for us to do. Celebrating that which God has done for us. The answered prayers when you thought God would never move. That sister or brother you thought was never going to get saved, they got saved. We need to remember. Remember those things and go back to those things and rehearse those things and realize, my God will meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. God's been there and he'll continue to be there. 
And that's what we want to remember. We want to remember. We want to celebrate like this. Listen, look what it says. Then in verse 4, Then the priest will take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. So what did they do first? Did they, their very first harvest, did they take out of that for themselves first? What was the very first thing they did with their, with their crops? They gave it to God. Who gave them the crops in the first place? God did, right? God did. One man sows, another waters. Who gives the increase? God. God gives the increase. So they give it to him. Okay, so they're giving thanks to the Lord for his provision. And then this is what they say from verse 5 on. Listen, and you will answer and say before the Lord your God, my father was a Syrian about to perish when he went down to Egypt and dwelt there few in number. How many went to Egypt? Does anybody know? Seventy went to Egypt. Seventy went down to Egypt there and became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. Some estimates as many as two and a half million came out of Egypt. That's why God said, hey, don't hate the Egyptians. You were there for 400 years. They mistreated you, but you flourished there. From 70 to 2.5 million. That's a, that's, that's a nation coming forth. And it was all part of God's plan, right? Was it God's plan for them to be in bondage for 400 years? Sure it was. He told Abraham that they would be in bondage for 400 years. It was part of what God was doing to develop the character within them. What's the Bible tell us when the, that fiery trial comes? What does that trial do? It works patience. What does patience do? It works character. What does character do? It works hope. What does hope do? Hope does not disappoint. Hope does not. What's our hope? Scripture lays out for us our hope is the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we see him face to face, guys, we're not going to care about none of this stuff. I can't wait. I want to see him more than I want anything else in my life. More than I want anything. And I want a lot of things. Don't get me wrong. But more than all that, I want to see Jesus face to face. I cannot wait for that day. I cannot wait for that opportunity. I want as many people to enjoy that opportunity as is possible. So he says, I'm remembering, right, where the nation came from. They came from Egypt. They were grown in Egypt through adversity, through, through difficulty, through suffering. But the Egyptians mistreated us and afflicted us and laid hard bondage on us. In verse 7, then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and on our labor and on our, and on our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror, with signs and with wonders. You hear how they're rehearsing how God had been with them all the way through? You hear them rehearsing the way the Lord delivered them and the things that God had done for them? God says, when you come into the land, don't forget to do this. Don't forget to celebrate the ways that your Lord, your God, has delivered you. Verse 9, he brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, I have brought you the first fruits of the land, which you, O Lord, have given me. You see the attitude in the, in the giving, right? God, I'm just bringing you the first fruits of what you gave me. What you've already poured out upon my life. Then you will set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. Man, I love that. John chapter 4. Jesus said, the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. God seeks those who would come to him with abandon. That would just open their heart to him. That didn't or weren't worried about all the other things we worry about in regard to worship. I remember in my life, for a long time, first time I ever came to Calvary Chapel, I grew up at Independent Fundamental Churches of America. That's the most fundamental, closest thing to terrorist group as you can possibly be in a church. If you call Washington and ask them about IFCA, I'm sure they'll tell you they're terrorists. We weren't terrorists, but we're fundamentals, right? We come to church and we sang two or three hymns. We taught the word of God through the word of God, believed the word of God. That's, how, that's all it takes to be a terrorist in this country anymore. And as we did all those things, and I grew up in all that stuff, you know, it was very staunch and very, 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 well, it was what 
I always thought church was. The first time I went into a Calvary Chapel and somebody raised their hand in service, I got scared for them. What did you, why'd you do that? Where's the usher at? They'll beat you in my church if you do that. They'll come and just smack you. Well, I'm probably exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> but the idea was kind of foreign to me, and I didn't understand it all, of the whole deal. I didn't, I didn't get what it was about. And I remember for a long time, I'd be looking at those people, and I'm like, man, I don't get it. I don't get it. And at that time, I had long hair. It's, it's, it's probably hard to imagine. But I had, I was a hippie back then. Still had the goatee, but I, I was a hippie. And I had, uh, uh, there was this one dude named Kevin that would sit in the front of church, and he had long hair too. He had had long hair longer than I had long hair because he was starting to go bald with long hair. You know how that happens. So <clears throat> I was thankful that that wasn't me. But he would sit there, and he'd be worshiping, and I, and I just was, um, I don't know, I, was, I, I had this connection with him, just because of the way he worshipped. He worshipped with abandon. He didn't care about what everybody thought. He wasn't trying to be a spectacle. He wasn't trying to make it all about me. But when he went to the Lord, man, he went to the Lord. He opened his heart. That's one of the things I love about the men's retreat. When you go to the men's retreat and you start playing worship and everything's unplugged and, and everything's kind of quiet. And when the guys sing and they're like way louder than you are when you're singing up front, it's, it's such a blessing. To feel that abandonment in worship. Just singing. And when the guys are there and their wives aren't next to them, they don't care if they're singing in key or out of key or side keys. It doesn't make any difference. They sing. They just sing. And what a blessing. What a blessing it is to the Lord. That's that attitude of abandonment. And and Kevin would would raise his hands to the Lord. And I'd, and I'd look at him. And there were a lot of people that would do that, you know, because that was... Uh, something that was normal, you know, within within Calvary Chapel that, that, that people would raise their hands and worship. And I just still didn't get it, didn't understand it. And then somebody came up to me one day and he says, you know, Jackie, what, the reason we raise our hands in church is because we are like children lifting our hands to our Father in heaven, praying that he would reach his hands down to us and pick us up, tell us he loves us, and we're telling him we love him. And that was, that kind of changed everything for me. And I, the first time I ever lifted my hands in church, I was afraid somebody was going to say, what are you doing? I've seen you here and you ain't never lifted your hands before. And now all of a sudden you're lifting your, put your hands down, boy. You're, you know, but you know what? The reality is nobody's paying any attention to you. Nobody's worried about that. When I read this scripture and it says they come and they, they lay, this is how I picture it. They lay down their first fruits before God and they're rehearsing the history of how God and then they worship him. My mind immediately goes to David when he was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Israel for the first time. And he stripped off his kingly robes because he realized before God he's not much of a king. And the Bible says... He danced before the Lord with all his heart. He worshiped God with abandon. And that's what I picture when they would come and they would give thanks for what God had done. They just worshiped him with abandon. Not that, you know, the the scripture doesn't lay out what they did. Why? Because if it told us what they did, we'd all do it and say, there, I'm worshiping with abandon. So God says, I'm not going to tell you what they did. Because it doesn't matter what they did. What matters is what you do. When you worship with abandon, you can worship God with abandon with your hands in your pockets sitting on a, on a chair. You don't got to do nothing special. It's a, in the heart, right? It's what's going on inside of me when I worship. doesn't have to be an outer show for anybody else, but God wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth, right? The Father seeks such to worship him. Spirit and in truth. And that's what they're doing here, man. They're bringing that offering. They're coming before the Lord. They're saying, Woohoo! God, thank you for all you've done and how you've met my needs this year. In verse 11, it says, So you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given you, and your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. You shall rejoice in every good thing that God has has given you. That's the attitude that God wants, right? Those who worship him in spirit and in truth. 
thanking God for every good thing. Is there anywhere in Scripture where it says we shouldn't rejoice? No. In fact, just by way of a trivia answer, if you ever play Bible trivia, they ask you what's the shortest verse in the Bible. Everybody knows that, right? What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept, but only in English. In Greek, the shortest verse in the Bible is rejoice always. That's one word. (laughs) I don't know if they ask you that, but just in case. You want to amaze your friends someday when you're talking about pointless things about the shortest verse in the Bible. Anyways, the Bible tells us rejoice always, right? Rejoice always, always. Here's what he's saying. He wants that rejoicing. Then in verse 12, now when you have finished laying aside all your tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your gates and be filled. What's this? Listen, this is kind of cool. The third year, every third year, the tithe would be split. The tithe that you offered up to the Lord every third year would go to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the orphan, the widow. It would go to them. It would be it would be split among them every third year. See, God cared about the fatherless. He cared about the widow. He cared about the alien. He cared about the stranger from another country that was dwelling among them. He says, listen, every third year, that tithe is going to go. It's all going to go to Levites. And the Levites are going to divide that tithe out. And it's going to be divided among the widows and the orphans and all those um, among the people that they would have their needs met. Every third year was to go to them. Now, does that mean God didn't care about them the first and second year? What happened the first and second year? Well, we know the scripture has already indicated to us in the law. When they received their harvest, how many times could they go through a field? One time. Could they do the corners? Nope. Nope. They didn't have pivots back then. So they weren't, al- they weren't allowed to harvest the corners. Who got the corners? The poor, the widows, the orphans, the people they didn't have. All they needed was a hand up, not a hand out, right? So they would come and they could glean. They could glean. Okay, They could have what they needed in that way. Every third year they would receive a part of the tithe. Now, then you will say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. So he's talking about an attitude of right giving here. He's going to not quite take us to the end with this, but he's talking about an attitude of right giving. It's interesting. The first thing that he lays out about an attitude of right giving, according to all your commandments, which you have commanded me. So right giving is always done according to God's word. He says, you're going to say to the Lord, I've brought out my holy tithe. I've brought out that. What's holy mean? Set apart. That which is set apart to God. Okay, so he's saying, I'm bringing out that which is set apart to God and the attitude of the heart. In the New Testament, what does it tell us? Give as one desires in their heart, but give what way? Hilariously, right? If you can't give it out of a cheerful heart, what does God say? Don't give it. Keep it. I don't want it. Does God need it? No. Who needs to give it? I do. Because where my heart is, that's where my treasure. Where my treasure is? That's where my heart is. It goes back and forth. So the Lord wants the treasure to be him, right? What's the greatest commandment? When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What was it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy, by the way. And then when, uh, when Jesus was asked, well, what's the greatest commandment? That's what he answered, right? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If I'm going to love God, then I have to put my treasure where God is. Isn't that what the word says? Because where my treasure is, that's where my heart is. So it's a, it's a condition of us. It's our condition. Okay? When my, if, my, if my heart is on my Harley, where's my checkbook? It's on my Harley. And I got all the fancy chrome on the outside and the pinstripes painted in Sturgis, signed by the artist. The little engraving on the back seat of Golgotha, the place of the skull. 
But if that's where my treasure is, then my heart's in the wrong place, right? My heart needs to be on who? The Lord my God, he's the most important thing in the world to me. If that's true, the word says, if that's true, then my treasure will bear that out. Where my treasure is, that's where my heart will be. Well, anyway, he goes on. Right giving will be according to God's word. What else? I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. This, the second thing that we see is right giving is done in the context of a life of obedience. Hey, I'm, I'm doing this because I, I'm honoring you. I'm honoring God. It's not nothing else. It's not so that I'll receive. It's not any number of other things. It's just I'm doing this because this is what I believe God has spoken to me to do. And I'm, I'm, and I'm going to fulfill that. And next one, I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for an unclean use. He's laying out, listen, I, this is really what I have set aside to the Lord, not what's left over. This is what I purposed in my heart to give God. This is what I purposed for you, Lord. And I, I didn't decide to go on a diet for a month so that I'd have something to give you, Lord. This is what I purposed. This is my purpose. I purposefully gave this unto you, God. Then he goes on, nor given any of it for the dead. <clears throat> it's not about superstition. It's not about an attitude that says, well, I'm going to put food in a grave with a dead body. See, this was a common practice in Egypt, right? When they found the mummies, where they find jars of food all around them for, the, for their journey to the land of the dead. They never ate any of it, amazingly. He says, I don't want you to give food for the dead. That's not what this is about. It's about making an offering unto the Lord. And then he goes on and tells us, For I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God, and I have done according to all that you have commanded me. So look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us, just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. All the while, the attitude was, God will meet my needs. God will meet my needs. Believe it. I believe it. My trust is in the Lord, in Him. He is my deliverance. He will meet my needs. I am expectant of that. I'm expectant of that. I recently talked to a mom. You know, moms love their kids, right? We have any moms who don't love their kids? Depends, right? <laughs> Ask me the right time, and I might say, no, I don't. Moms love their children. Sometimes our children are going through uh, stupidity. Making dumb decisions, right? Doing dumb things. And I know this particular mom loves her, her daughter, all her heart. And her daughter just keeps blowing it, keeps blowing it, keeps blowing it. And, and she continues to, to do everything she can to help her out. Do you understand that sometimes God calls people to go through difficulty so that they have to look to him? And if I'm heading that off all the time, I'm actually getting in the way of what God's trying to do. How do I know the difference? I really have to press into God, right, and ask him for wisdom before I decide to do anything. Lord, is this something that we're supposed to go through? Is this something that's supposed to happen? Because when Abraham sent Ishmael out, how much provision did he give him? One skip, one little thing of water. Because when Ishmael was delivered, what would Ishmael say? Who delivered him? Abraham, my father, delivered me. He gave me all these camels and sheep and oxen and all of his riches. He really hooked me up. No. What did he say? God, deliver me. And Abraham had the faith. Abraham had the faith to trust God with his son. The son who Abraham loved with all his heart. And sometimes it's the same in our life. We have to realize sometimes God's calling there to be hardship in someone's life. And if we are always running to their deliverance, 
It may be that that's God's plan, but we better know that's God's plan. We better be asking the Lord for wisdom and saying, God, guide and direct me. Because if God wants someone to go through hard time, we don't want to try to cut off what God's doing by taking the place of God in someone's life, right? At the same time, we don't want to be those people who have lost compassion and don't want to have compassion for others. So how can we know? For the ancient nation of Israel, what was at the very center of their camp? Tabernacle, right? The presence of Almighty God was central to everything they did. When did they move? When God moved. When did they camp? When God camped. And then everybody encircled the Lord. Is God central in your life? Is he central to all you're doing? If he is, then it's fine. Everything's good. Just keep God central. Augustine said it best. Love God with all your heart and do what you want. The Bible says, if I delight in the law of the Lord, he'll give me the desires of my heart. That means not that God's going to give me another uh, Harley. That means that God, if I delight myself in the Lord, that he is going to be moving in my heart and guiding me and directing me and giving me the concept, the ideas, the feeling, the compassion, the love, the things I need to reach out to people. But I need that to be central. I need that to be the very central thing of what God's doing and how God's moving. We're always going to love people and love our kids and love our friends. And sometimes, sometimes we're going to help people that maybe we shouldn't have helped. But if we keep God central, you and I, God's in the middle, God's guiding, God's leading, God's spirit, then he has a plan, right? And he'll carry us through it. And he'll tell us, hey, help her. And we'll help. And sometimes he may say, don't. And when he does, we won't. Because God's doing a work. And we got to leave room for God to be God, don't we? We want to leave room for the Lord to do what he's going to do. But we're going to expect God to move. Because that's what he does, isn't it? We're going to trust him. Verse 16, this day the Lord your God commands you to observe the statutes and judgments. Therefore, you will be careful to observe them with what? All your heart. Most of your heart, some of your heart, a little bit of your heart. All of your heart and what? All of your soul. By the way, that's all of you. This day you will be careful to observe them. He said in chapter 4, it begins with listen to the statutes of the Lord. In chapter 26, it ends with now do them. Blessed are those who are not hearers only, but doers also. Moving forward in obedience to what God's word declares. Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God. Is the Lord your God? Is the Lord your everything? He says, this day, not only have you proclaimed the Lord to be your God, but what? That you will walk in his ways, keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and that you will obey his voice. John said it this way in 1 John 2, 6. And anybody who says that the Lord Jesus Christ is his Lord ought also to walk as he walked. That's why we talk about our, our Christian life as the walk, our, our walk. We're, we're following the Lord. We're doing what God's called us to do. Not only is he my God, but I'm going to go where he calls me to go. I'm going to do what he calls me to do. I will follow. I love that new song Chris Tomlin has out. You know, that I will, I will follow you. Where, you. where you go, I'll go. Where you lead, I'll follow. Where you direct, when you speak, I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen. You remember when the high priests were, were sanctified, set apart for service, there was a sacrifice, and they took a little blood and they put it on their thumb, right thumb, right ear, right big toe. People would go, what? Yeah. Everything I do with my hands, everything I hear with my ear, everywhere I walk, 
may be led by the blood of Jesus Christ. Where he leads, I'll follow. Where he goes, I'll go. He is central to my life. He is central to my life. That's what he's saying here in verse 17. You proclaim the Lord to be your God and that you're going to walk like he walks. For the children of Israel at this time, wasn't it easier? How did they know when God moved? You remember the cloud, right? That big cloud followed them in the pillar of fire. So if we went outside and there was this giant vortex cloud over us all the time, and all of a sudden we come out and it was gone, but we could see it was over there, what were we supposed to do? Hey, let's go. God's moving. We need to follow the Lord. If it was at night and we happened to look out over the temple and we noticed that pillar of fire is not there no more. The pillar of fire is over here. It's time to pack up and move. God's moving. It's no different in our life. It's no different. It's not so easy to see. But we got to get out of this mindset, guys, that God doesn't want us to know his will. That God's will is somehow secret. And only if you are extra special will God reveal his will to you. No. God wants to reveal his will to you. What do we need to do? The Bible says you have not because you ask not. We ask, he'll reveal. It's that simple. Really, honest and true. That simple. Love God with all your heart. Do what you want. Make God central in your life. Ask him to reveal his will to you. And he will reveal his will to you. Verse 18. Also today the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people. Just as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments. Isn't it awesome that Jesus calls us friend? Man. That we become children of God. To all those who received him. To them gave you the power to become the children of God. The children of God. So the children of the king. When they, when they wanted to talk to the king. Did they have to make an appointment? Uh, no. Children could always get in to see dad. Can we always get in to see dad? Our father in heaven. Can we always find ourselves at the throne of his grace? Immediately we can enter in boldly to the throne of grace, right? Now, what the scripture declares? Today, he has declared you his own special people. You're my kids, God says. And I am your father. And to one another, you are brothers and sisters. Special people. A special people loved of God. Specially loved of God. And that he will set you high above all nations which he has made in praise, in name, in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. This is what God declared to the nation of Israel, and they're still a holy people to God. And God still has a plan, and one day the clock will begin running again, the 70th week of Daniel will start, and God will once again turn his attention to the nation of Israel, and he will fulfill every promise he ever gave them. But until that time, you and I, we're also a holy people. The church, the mystery Hinted at in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New. Seen now clearly as Paul would indicate that we are a new creation created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has before ordained for us that we would walk in them. God has a plan. He has a direction. And he loves you. He loves me. He loves us. He wants us to be part of that special family. He has a special plan. And if we want to experience victory in the promised land, in that land where we have the abundant life that Christ promised, then we need to apply. Is God central in my life? We answer that question and walk as he walked. And it doesn't matter what happens with the Suez Canal. You'll have what you need. You'll be okay. Because Bahrain is not in control. And Egypt is not in control. Israel is not in control. Thank God the United States is not in control. God is in control. He knows what he's doing. 
and he'll take care of us. We just got to listen and follow what he gives us as directions to do. Amen? Why don't we stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time we can come before you. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to to study your word, Lord Jesus, and to realize, God, that you're still speaking to us, God. You, the, Paul would declare to the, to the church, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. How could he say that? Because he taught them Deuteronomy. He taught them Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. He went through Joshua and Judges. He went through the first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles. He went through the scriptures and he said, it is these that speak of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And they have relevance to us today. So he said, I, I, am, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have told you the truth. God, may that be our heart, Lord Jesus, that we would be innocent of all men, that we would be willing to share the truth of your word to whomever you bring before us. And Lord God, that we would not have a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power through the spirit. May we stand strong in the armor of the Lord and having done all, having done all, may we stand therefore. Father, we pray that you would move in a mighty way through your church because praise the Lord, whenever the storm comes, God, you pour out revival. Whenever hard times come, churches fill up. People want to hear the truth of God's word. People will get saved. God, may we be ready to offer hope. May we be ready to say, God loves you. and He's in control. And he wants you to be home with him more than he wants anything else. God, may we be found doing what you've called us to do. May we look back at our lives and say, Yahweh Yireh, the Lord my God has provided for my needs so many ways. And may we celebrate and give thanks. Lord God, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we ask, Lord, that it would accomplish that to which it is sent. Father, may we honor you in all we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.